0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak, and I'm here with Tony Hansen. Tony, how are you doing? Great. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Glad to have you here. And um, I have really been looking forward to this conversation. So, you are the director of Natural Capital. Did I get it right?
1: That's correct. We, we call it Natural Capital and Nature. And I'll explain that later in case that's helpful.
0: Yeah, I would love to get, before getting into details, I'd love to get what does that mean at McKinsey? And what brought you to to sustainability, to leadership, and also to sustainability leadership, which I distinguish as all those three things have a lot of overlap, but
1: not necessarily. Sounds like a long story, but uh, <laughs> I'll start just, just very basic background, and then I'll sort of get into some of those leading questions you had. So... Uh, background, I am South African by birth. I did a couple of business degrees at the University of Cape Town. After traveling, I went away for a 10-year period because I didn't want to uh, be a consultant. And so I started a company running international adventure sports events, and it was just prior to reality TV. So if you could create an exciting event with enough madness, television companies would uh, take it and you could therefore find sponsors to, to fund the model. So I had a very colorful chapter for 10 years doing that. And at the conclusion of that, I really wanted to apply my business project management skills to conservation. At that stage, sustainability consulting didn't really exist. So I did my best pitching my ways to the various NGOs around the world and the majority of them said you haven't got an environmental science degree you can't be helpful and fortunately a friend from conservation international who is leading the program in south africa felt sorry for me and gave me an opportunity (laughs) to uh work with the south african wine industry they they hadn't managed to make any progress and this is back in uh 2003 and they said we'll give you three months to to see if you can make any progress with the industry and uh I like wine, I like talking with people, and I really believe in protecting nature. So I've managed to find some common ground with the leaders, and that evolved into a strategy, a sort of uh, industry-wide sustainability strategy with strong nature components, and it's, it's still going 20-plus years later. So that is kind of the introduction, and I've mostly been working in that space for the last 20 years. When I did move to the U.S. in 2008, I worked with a boutique sustainability consulting company and had amazing exposure to leadership both at the, at the C-suite level and uh, with the sustainability leads with a number of Fortune 100 companies. So that was a really interesting and deep dive chapter at the very early stage of sustainability consulting. And then I spent 10 years with a slight trajectory uh, moving into infrastructure, which started off, and this is running the Global Infrastructure Initiative, which started off at aiming to narrow the infrastructure gap globally between what exists and what society needs to function sustainably. And that rapidly evolved into decarbonization and energy transition as the program went along. And While doing that, I also did a lot of pro bono work on really trying to make the case for conservation. And that's the business case for conservation. And internally at McKinsey, we wrote a number of papers on that. And we managed to convince the McKinsey leadership that in addition to climate, we also need to focus on nature as a whole, looking at more than just climate. And, you know, the brief frame around that, and I can talk about it later, is There's a framework we use called the Planetary Boundaries Approach, which came up by
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, the Stockholm Resilience Institute and really takes nine planetary boundaries of which climate is one and really makes the case for needing to protect all nine. So anyway, so as of January, we started a new practice, which is called Natural Capital and Nature. And it's really taking that planetary boundary approach to corporations and helping them figure out what their impacts and dependencies are in nature and how to mitigate those. And then there's a fun additional side, and it's the last thing I'll say in the background, is we also work through the public and the social sector in helping implement the global biodiversity framework, which is really one of the core targets is protecting 30% of countries and oceans by 2030. So now I have to make a
0: joke. Ah. So basically, all all of that was you failed at not being a consultant. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all right. So you said a lot, and I think more than anything else, more than any of the words that you said was there's. I, I heard passion. I heard a lot of passion, and I heard a passion sticking through thick and thin. And I wonder if you, what where did it come from? Because it could come from a lot of different places. Were there experiences, or were there goals? 'Cause you really stuck I mean, I heard that you really stuck through a lot of things mm-hmm. that a lot of people would have not stuck through.
1: Yeah, you know, I th- I think the certainly for me the the passion and the overarching theme is I derive huge value from nature and I was introduced to it at the youngest age in a country where there's a lot of amazing biodiversity and and scenic beauty. And that has remained part of my life and if I look for sort of a raison d'etre to work and to move forward, it's it's to do what I can in my small way to conserve, protect, and help manage that uh, amazing gift of nature that we all have. And you've gone in a direction that makes a lot of sense
0: to me, but somehow doesn't seem to make sense to a lot of people. Because so many people say, Josh, if you love nature so much, why don't you go off and live in the woods? And to me, the threat to the woods isn't in the woods. It's in the boardrooms. And so working with the CEOs, the elected officials, also influential people, of athletes and movie stars, that's the place to work to stop the problem. Is that obvious to you or do you see anything differently?
1: Yes, to, you know, to me, I, I just think, I think for all of us, we need to think of, you know, what are our skills and how and where can we influence whatever we want to change and to try and put ourselves in in that position. You know, for me, when I look at what impacts nature more than anything else? It is, it is the way we lead our lives and, you know, what sort of provides those resources and pulls from nature to enable that. It's largely the private sector. So for me, the real opportunities are one, to engage the private sector and help them to view their business through a lens of sustainability. And then two, where possible, where one can apply business skills and models to conservation to increase the impact of that, that's another important area. And you know, through both the public and the social sector, in my opinion, is a good place to engage. Do you think of yourself as having, do you
0: have particular skills to work with? I mean, you said you like wine, and, but to influence business leaders, private sector leaders, because I I mean, there was just an article I read an article recently that you interviewed the c s o Kathleen McLaughlin of If I said that right of Walmart, and I'd love to get an inside view to the extent you can share of these interactions. I mean, I think a lot of people would like to know what is going on inside the corporations and inside government. I don't know how much you can share.
1: Yeah, you know, so, you know, on on the Walmart side, I think that interview is a good starting point and I think everything that we talked about is on the Walmart website. They've done a great job of of putting the stories down there, but perhaps not as good a job of sharing it worldwide, but you know, Walmart per se were one of the first retailers in the world, and I say this not as from a McKinsey perspective, but they started their journey, and it's it's in the in the interview, literally almost 20 years ago around Hurricane Katrina. And since then they have really dug deep into understanding their sustainability footprint and taking you know very engaged action in trying to mitigate that. And working with multiple players in the value chain, from you know the full value chain through to external players like uh, working with NGOs, and you know they've literally been engaged in that process since uh, 2005. Can you share any
0: others? Uh, I'd like. I mean, I'm not looking for details of like particular names, but the the level of genuineness, authenticity. When I think of leadership, in most areas people get that the, it's very difficult to lead a company to lead to live by values that the leader themselves is not living by and so i'd look for how much does what the web page says and and the leadership how much are they genuinely authentically and effectively in it themselves and then even if they're very much dedicated are they um there may be a lot of friction and internal resistance or maybe there's enthusiasm. They're slowing things down. I I'm just very curious what that inside view is like.
1: Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I can talk a little bit about the Walmart side. It was before my McKenzie chapter and, and I had the uh, fortune of working with Walmart on uh, their responsible sourcing initiative. This is back in 2008. And you know just, brief side from your question with regard to the the level of senior executive engagement this was you know initially this whole sustainability effort the engagement was with the ceo and the entire executive team and there was real commitment accountability and involvement throughout but you know the, the arc of the story is initially they did a footprint to understand where their impacts were and there was obviously their operations energy waste and so on and then there was the supply chain and you know because ultimately they're a business that buys buys and sells a lot of stuff so 90 percent plus of the footprint was in the supply chain so once they had addressed their own store operations and waste and looked at right size packaging the next step was how can we really engage in the supply chain and make it make a difference and that's where the responsible sourcing initiative came from which is really looking at sort of their major sourcing uh, location. At that time, it was in China and figuring out how for a start do we get transparency throughout the supply chain so we know where the products are coming from and how do we ensure that we know these products are responsibly sourced from an environmental and a social perspective.
0: I'm also wondering, here's an abstract question. I want to ask not about Walmart in particular, but just as a leadership question what happens if there's a company that's core business is not sustainable i mean it's it's a really big, i mean there are companies out there that i think would fit that category and it may be difficult to see a path toward sustainability for them and yet they may be profitable they may be they may have very happy customers and employees and Like, I hope to work with people like that and organizations like that because without help from the outside, they probably won't do anything or they'll probably keep doing what they're doing. And I'm not sure if you've hit places like that. And I'm not looking for details if you have, but have you ever considered what do we do in a situation like that?
1: Yeah, well, I think, Josh, if we're honest with ourselves, there are very few businesses today that are truly sustainable or regenerative, you know, across the board. We are consuming more of our natural capital or natural resources than 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 the earth can maintain. so I think we have a fundamental problem of overconsumption, and you know some industries are more damaging than others. So I think every company can benefit from really looking at the the side of you know what are my impacts on nature?" and when I say nature, I I include climate, how do I mitigate that? And with the degree of urgency, how do I get started and measure my impact?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, the questions are hard enough on their own. And then the answers are going to be, I think a lot of people don't want to look at those answers. And, and, you know, switching not just from um, CEOs and executives, but also just the person on the street. If you know, if their mom's on the opposite coast, flying distance away, it's uh, it's really difficult to think about what am I going to do if I set up a lifestyle, or if it's a company, I set up a company to that relies on a certain amount of what I thought at the time was benign, and turns out the science shows is not. And this to me is like the core of leadership is is uh, I think my definition of leadership is to help people do what they already wanted to do but haven't figured out how. And I think most people will be content to leave that problem for later. And we've been doing that for several decades or generations now. And I feel like, I mean, I look at McKinsey as a place that really fosters effective leadership. And so this is a place where I feel like it's, it's missing for a lot of people and I think, they, I think a lot of people if you ask them they'll say stop making me feel guilty if you talk to them about sustainability something like that they'll push back but I think they really want to get past it they want help they want to I think they ache to live more sustainably but it's, and I think living sustainably isn't hard mm-hmm. living sustainably in a culture that is unsustainable is hard but that's a people issue not a technology or uh, that's a culture issue I've said a lot there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What I like is the analogy you drew between a sustainable company and a sustainable individual life. You know, I I think let's hope the majority of us want to lead sustainable lives and you know work for sustainable companies and purchase sustainable goods. The reality is is the our behaviors and often the market signals don't incentivize that behavior. And it's often the price and the accessibility and the allure, uh, the marketing of, of of those products, which pushes us in a direction which is not necessarily sustainable. So I, I think there's a long discussion there as, as to how one addresses that at a personal level, at a corporate level, and then arguably at a... Uh, a national and an international global level.
0: Yeah, I've been asking about your work with client, not clients, but I mean, the, your leadership work with others. I wonder, how about McKinsey itself? It's, uh, I mean, my first thought of McKinsey is like everyone's flying all the time, but also incredible influence. Yeah. And certainly if I go to McKinsey's webpage, there's a lot on climate and it looks like it's saying all the right things. And it may be, I think one might be. I think people may be skeptical of McKinsey, but maybe also underestimating. How big is is your role with influencing McKinsey internally, and how? What do you think of what it's doing?
1: I think McKinsey is is really trying to tackle the majority of the big issues. As you probably know, you know, climate has been front and center of one of those issues. Working with clients to really try and decarbonize and realize the net zero targets i think with you know there's obviously a core challenge within the model of flying to clients and wanting to be on site. i think the pandemic helped with that because it demonstrated that one could still be very effective in the role working remotely and many of the engagements are still you know certainly a lot less flying happening now than before the pandemic but uh clients still do like to have McKinsey on site with regard to sort of what's inside and you know where we're kind of we personally a number of my colleagues now are really pushing and and, and you know just the, the fact that we have managed to start this practice on natural capital nature is a start uh that there's acknowledgement is is really to help internally recognize our, our colleagues recognize that there's there's no Pathway to net zero without nature, without incorporating nature. You know, ultimately, nature is the foundation for life on Earth. So, when we go and work with clients, not only are we going to look at you know optimizing their business and ensuring that they are decarbonizing, but it's also looking at those broader impacts on nature and that they have a mitigation plan for those. So, I, you know, it's an evolving process. But I think McKinsey's certainly listening to the signals and responding to them and taking that to their clients. How's that feel for you? Because it sounds like what I'm hearing is
0: a few people, at least a few people, enthusiastic about it and putting effort in. I'm hearing, I'm not hearing great pushback that probably would have been there, I don't know, five years ago, ten years ago. And but still slower moving than you'd like, I would guess. How does it? What's it like? Are, and and also you said you didn't want to be a consultant and now you're a consultant at McKinsey is it uh is it giving you the opportunity to, that you're looking for is it like cuz i can imagine now you've got a great lever arm
1: yeah it's you know, it's it's definitely a powerful lever to get in front of the right people i'm talking externally you know leaders across the private social and public sectors and have meaningful discussions and you know, I like think what McKinsey does well is we bring the data and the analytics behind and make the business case for change. Is it moving fast enough? Absolutely not. You know, if you if you just look at where we are on nature, with anything like twenty percent decline in forested areas recently, you know, a third of our topsoil degraded, eighty-five percent of westla- uh, wetlands lost, you know, fifty percent of coral reef systems lost. You know, it's in Increasing plastic pollution it's it's definitely too little too fast across the board but on the positive side there is acknowledgement now that you know over the last two years nature has gone from not being on the agenda of the of the sort of private sector and being un gatherings to being front and center on the agenda and recently at climate week it's uh dubbed by many as climate and nature week so it's it's certainly getting there the passing of the global biodiversity framework in december last year is a big victory there's a lot of work happening through the un and through businesses to put up structures that can help companies report on their impacts on nature so i think there's movement but it, it's certainly too little and too slow at this stage if we want to turn things around
0: Yeah. You're saying things that I say too a lot of uh I mean, one thing about changing systems I find is that if you try to push faster than it can go, you'll generally slow things down despite your best efforts. And so you have to gauge whom can I move in what way and how fast in order not to go not to push, but also not to not push. Are, are these some of the challenges you face at, within the firm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think our, our band of natural capital and nature leaders are you know, really going through a process of, of educating or helping educate and enroll McKinsey across all the sectors that we work to understand how this works and how to bring it to clients. You know, Like if I look back to the early years of sustainability, When viewing a business through sustainability through a sustainability lens, in addition to having a more sustainable business, there are a whole lot of direct business advantages. You know, you take right side, right size packaging. Twenty years ago, everything in the in retail was in big boxes, much bigger boxes than they needed to be. By designing right side packaging, there was you know one. Less expense for the companies because less cardboard paper. But then what the big surprise was for many of the retailers was they were saving huge amounts in shipping because this, these products were coming in huge boxes, mostly air being shipped from around the world, then going into their distribution centers and going into their stores. And it was just a, a massive waste of space and freight. And by looking at it that way, there was a business case to do it. And you know, same thing with. The way people manage their trucking fleets and you know putting doors in refrigerators and lights that use less energy so so I you know on the nature side as we develop this further I think there will be good business cases and you know for me one of the most intuitive business cases is surety of supply you know there are certain areas with certain commodities that if we know what we know about climate and deteriorating nature it will not be viable to grow those crops in those areas in the way we currently do it but if we do take on regenerative farming practices there's a strong probability that once we convert those farms to regenerative practices we can guarantee our our supply of those products despite those deteriorating conditions across the world so you know i i think those forward-looking companies are starting to see that and starting to try and figure out how do we do that. And you know, enough of those happening, enough stories, enough observation, that is, that is enough to get an industry to start transforming. Now, I'm pausing
0: here because I'm not sure to pick the I'm going to mention this. So when I hear about making a supply, line, a supply chain more efficient, one of the things I think of is that if you make a polluting system more efficient, you may lower pollution in one area, but if you in this case simply reinvest the profits into shipping more things, then if you make a polluting system more efficient, you pollute more efficiently.
1: Yeah, I I was referring not to a polluting system. So I was, you know, let's let's take the example of let's take growing corn or soy, you know, largely a you know, it in with the traditional method of farming, it is reducing the soil health. And there is a point where, and already there's, there's a coming, where the crop yields are decreasing. So the alternative in that instance would be to move that towards regenerative farming. So whatever those principles might incorporate, perhaps it's no tilling, perhaps it's drip irrigation instead, perhaps it's putting organic matter into the soil instead of instead of chemical matters. But the end result is what you want from that is a more resilient supply of whatever that commodity is that will reverse the loss of nature, which ultimately is impacting the long-term supply of that commodity. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I agree with regenerative farming, assuming that it's replacing something more intensive and unsustainable. I was thinking of the more efficient packaging that, yeah, of course it makes sense to, if you're shipping a lot of air around and using extra packaging that's unnecessary, to reduce it to less feels like a win, and I think it is a win. Mm -hmm. But if the company also doesn't, and it might not be the company, but maybe the culture has to change to, like, if you end up saving money and then things become cheaper and then people buy more things, and the company reinvests the profits into shipping more things, then we've accelerated a cultural... Whatever, whatever the culture was achieving before, it's going to achieve more. I mean, you will get more stuff. I mean, people will be... If the things that they were buying... Say it was awesome stuff, like uh, you know, things that cure diseases, mm-hmm. then we'll get more disease cures. But we'll also get more of everything else. So it's a big challenge that I think a lot of people don't recognize but the answer is not reverting to the stone age as a lot of people jump to conclusion.
1: But I, you know, I agree with you. Efficiency, improving efficiency alone, isn't going to solve the problem. I think you, you know, sometimes improving the efficiency will provide the additional investment to transform a crop or an industry to a more regenerative version. And, you take the example of you know, fuel efficient vehicles or electric vehicles, that innovation should result in less use of unsustainable energy as long as the source of that energy is renewable. So I think, you know, down the line, what we need to look for is the most regenerative practices in all industry with you know, the least impact on natural capital reinvesting wherever one can in that natural capital if we are gonna have a sustainable economy to support, you know, our projected population.
0: Now I want to keep going into this. Do you mind if I jump over to the Spodith method?
1: Yeah, go ahead.
0: So you talked earlier at the beginning you talked about want I asked you about the passion that you described and you talked about growing up in a country actually you reminded me of at a Pascas I don't know that many people from South Africa, so I, I apologize that when you mentioned that, I thought of a past guest, Lorna Davis, who is just in love with rhinoceroses, what? and she outright says that, and she was the CEO of... Um, but she, Well, I'll put a link for people to go to listen to hers, but when you think about nature in your personal experience, what do you think of as like what's nature to you if you like if i asked you to paint a picture of of an experience of you in nature where you're doing something that really that you enjoy or that feels like a quintessential piece of nature for you,
1: you know, it's different for everyone mm, yeah i have many of those but i'll i'll paint two so one is being in the okavango delta in botswana which in my opinion is one of the most biodiverse healthy natural environment in the world was just incredible fauna and flora and a very balanced system so it's it's and it's being in that place and being still and watching nature evolve around you so everything from the the water which floods in from a river in the north over a period of time through to the the, the, the large herds of antelope moving through, through to the lions and other cats following them through the elephants walking through the rivers. It's, it's just, uh, it's this amazing balance of nature, largely unimpacted by humanity. And then, you know, a more tangible, simple one would be, you know, right today, walking, walking through the forest with the four colors, uh, in Oregon, where I live, it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely dramatic, to just see this color and expression of nature and to really treasure it as it is right now.
0: Man, I have to say that a lot of people, most of the time when people describe these things, I can, they bring me there. And to some, what yours, talking about Botswana, is so far, like I've seen nature shows. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't think that they do remotely justice to what you described. Yeah. I I mean,
1: is it, it must be beyond anything that can be on a screen. It really is. And, you know, for me, just, we have two daughters and we were able to take them on a, on a trip to Botswana over the summer and, and to watch the shift in them as human beings. Yeah. Just a very emotional experience. You know, they just got it, you know, everything from when we we're sitting around reading books and around our, you know, campsites and, a huge bull elephant came into the middle of the campsite because it wanted to get some water. And (laughs) the disruption it caused and the wonder as this elephant came in and sort of uh, moved us to the side as it sipped its water and then moved on.
0: You described your children going through that experience. Did you go through uh, a change? Did something like that happen with, with you
1: when you were a kid? Did you notice if it did? I can't pin it down to one point, but i we we were lucky enough that you know every holiday we would jump in a car as a family and go to a national park or mountains or ocean some wild place, and you know in some very humble accommodation or camping we would spend we would spend the nights there and spend the days exploring and so we was just blessed with this you know incredible access to nature, you know, multiple times a year. And, you know, I, with sort of 18 years of that and my sort of schooling years, I I finished the chapter under the under my parents' roof with this deep appreciation and love of nature. And, and you know, in the, the small chapters I've spent where I have not been able to have access to that, I crave for it. Yeah, I can't,
0: I can't make me want to when yeah. uh, miss it, I, I haven't even been there. And can you take one instance and and like what are the, beside what do you see, what do you smell and taste and touch and hear? Mm. If you
1: don't mind sharing, yeah, no, that that's, that's a great one because I I always explain to people why Africa is different because and you know the the, the kind of what I communicate is how the the smells are stronger, the colors are brighter, the textures are more vivid and so you know let's go and i'll take a totally different one because i I spent this chapter working with the south african wine industry as i mentioned so you may or may not have been to a number of of vineyards in in the world and they often are beautiful places but the south african vineyards in the western cape are particularly dramatic and i'll you know paint the picture again you've got vineyards which are vineyards You then have these beautiful lush green areas with oak trees, this Cape Dutch architecture, which you can look it up, but it's a, it's a fascinating architecture that evolved over the last four, 500 years of South Africa's history. And then it moves into the natural habitat and the natural habitat is filled with, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of species of plants. And if you go and just explore any kind of Five by five square foot area, you will see a huge variety of plants. And then if you go deeper, you will see a huge variety of insects, you know, invertebrates moving around. And then you sort of lift your head up. And as you get higher in the altitude, you'll see that the plants' types change based on the altitude and the soil types. And then you sort of keep glancing your eyes up and you get to these massive, craggy mountains, you know, sort of six, 7,000 feet above you and that combined with the feel of the breeze coming through and and uh you know just uh, the knowledge that this has all evolved over millennia and continues to evolve you know it's it's for me it's totally evocative evocative yeah what what emotions do you feel in say that situation
0: or with the elephants can you name a few
1: yeah I think it is. It's a combination of gratitude, amazement and a deep sense of belonging. Based on those
0: emotions, let's see, gratitude. You said earlier love as well. Yep. And Great. Great. yeah. Yeah. Based on those emotions, I invite you to think of something you could do where you are now in your regular life to evoke or to manifest those feelings. Of course, you won't be able to get exactly that because it won't be the same situation and it sounds like nothing is like those things. But I contend that we have access to nature to give some of that to us. And if you're up for it, it's to think of something you could do to give yourself these feelings of connection or oneness or uh, gratitude. And if you go for it, there's three conditions or constraints that I've found that work that help a lot is something you're not already doing something that you do yourself with your own hands. So not try to get others to change and something that has a physical component, not just reading or watching a documentary, but something where you physically do something and, and where it doesn't have to be measured. That's not the point, but something where you have a feeling afterward of I left it better than I found it. And, Something I, I a lot of people hear that I'm not saying is think of something you can do to fix something or to do something to help something. It's really, that may be a nice side effect, but it's really to help to create those feelings on whatever scale is possible. Or that doesn't have to be all of them. It could be just one or two of them. Want to give it a
1: shot? Yeah, I, I love that nudge. So as I mentioned you, I, I'm fortunate in that I, I do try and get into nature Most days, in some way, whether it be kayaking down a river, riding a bike, hiking up a hill, whatever it might be. But I think this your whole concept of if you put effort into something, you will feel some sense of belonging and ownership and deeper love, appreciation. And when you were mentioning that, what triggered for me, which is something which I intend to go out and do is one of the ways others can get access to nature is through infrastructure, through a path, a well-maintained path that gets one up to the top of a mountain or a trail which enables people to ride their bikes through or through access to a river to put in and take out. So what? Your prompt made me think about is where I live in Bend, Oregon, there are an incredible amount of trails. Um, and I always think about it's amazing that people build and maintain these trails. So what I would like to do going forward is get involved in volunteering in some way, shape, or form in doing that. I, I, in my head, I've been saying I'll do that when I've got time, but there's no better time than now. Yeah, this it's almost like a bifurcation when I
0: invite people here because sometimes people say, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while and this is my chance to do it, like no better time than now. And some people, they have a really hard time and it can take like 20, 30 minutes of going back and forth. And then almost always there's this flip and they're like, oh, you mean I can just do that? And, and then usually it's something they've been thinking of for a while too. So it's really refreshing when someone has been thinking about something. And is it something that you think if you're doing it, would you leave it better than you found it? And would you, would it, do you anticipate that it would give you some of those feelings that you felt in South Africa, either in the vineyards or in Botswana? You know, not exactly the same, of course.
1: Yeah. You know, absolutely. You know, from the side of, would it leave it better than they found it? Yes. You know, the trail would be more accessible to others. Would... would it evoke some of those feelings absolutely you know my my certainly my life experience my model is you if you invest in something you take ownership and as a result of taking ownership and you know with the intention of making things better you feel that deeper sense of connectedness and you know in this instance it's it's really built around this passion that i have for getting into the outdoors and getting others into the outdoors and getting them to appreciate it. So, yes, I think absolutely.
0: And would you be game to come back and share your experience after you've had a chance to do it? Absolutely, because that'll force me uh, to take action. Yes, there's a bit of accountability built into this, which is, you know, when someone wants to do something, I think in my experience that helps people, not
1: nags. Completely, and, and you know, Josh, this, this is going to help me. It's it's prompting a whole bunch of things, which is really interesting. You know, through a lot of my career, I've done a lot of volunteer work, but probably one of the most satisfying versions of this was with Tompkins Conservation, which is a very inspiring organization that primarily operates in Chile and Argentina, and it was founded by. Doug Tompkins and his wife, Chris Doug founded the North face in Esprit clothing. And Chris was the CEO of Patagonia for 25 years. And in the nineties, they got fed up with working in the corporate sector and thought they would put their time and money into saving nature in Chile and Argentina. And their model was buy huge tracts of land, restore it and protect it. And over 30 years, they've protected, created about 20 million acres of national park with an amazing team and incredible supporters. And I was fortunate enough to get to know each of them pretty well. Unfortunately, Doug passed about seven years ago. But when he passed, Chris asked if I could help with this huge project that he'd come up with, which is really creating a route of parks, 17 national parks from Puerto to Cape Horn over about 1,700 miles, connecting it with a scenic highway and marine way, and really building a sustainable economy around the nature-based tourism. And he'd sort of started this, this move in that way, and, and when he died, it stalled. So I was able to jump into this and got a pro bono McKinsey team to help me, And we could actually make the case and the identify the changes needed in Chile to make this happen. And as a result, and there was, there was a lot of time and effort that went into that. And, you know, through that exercise, my depth and love for Patagonia has increased tenfold. And, you know, it's certainly become. Yeah, you know, a very central part of what's important to me in my life and in the work that I've done in my life. Yeah, I've it echoes
0: feelings of mine. I, um, I don't know if you've worked with Vincent Stanley. He's on the board of my nonprofit, and he's been become a great friend. And he's talked about some of these things from the inside. Uh, do you know him? I'm not sure. I don't know. No, he's Yvonne Schurinard's nephew, and he's been with Patagonia from the start. I think his. Title is officially director of storytelling, but he was director of sales at some point. Uh-huh. Now, is it he's still Patagonia, but also Yale School of Management, or, and I think maybe also of forestry. And he's told me some of these stories from uh, decades and decades ago. And when I visited Patagonia in Ventura, he set things up for me to meet a lot of people. And the culture of that company, I've not met a, I've not experienced a company with that level of, what's the word, integrity and, and coherence. And and that they're not, by, by no means saying they're perfect. They're upfront about their flaws. And yeah, so you made me think of that. So in our conversation, making me think of that, was it, I'm wondering what the connection was, was it just simply memories or was it also, I couldn't help but wonder if you were thinking, I wonder if this could catapult into something like that, but here instead of there
1: but I'm not sure if I was reading it too much. Yeah, well, that's a good prompt. You know, I th- I think what made me think about it is putting effort into something which is beyond your day-to-day job, work, how that can really give huge positive, have huge positive feedback loops, both on you know, your own person, but also on others. You know, I, I always recall, I don't know if you ever read the book by Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama on the Book of Joy. And Not yet. Yeah. What, so that I highly recommend it. But, you know, the three sort of takeaways from these wise 80-plus-year-old men who get together on the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday to discuss the concept of joy and, you know, my takeaways from the Pillars of Joy, a positive attitude, gratitude, and generosity. And it's that last one, which is so interesting to me because our our culture doesn't necessarily reinforce or reward generosity, but it has such amazing positive feel, feedback loops when you are generous in any way. When you do something you don't have to do, and I always use that as my my screen. If if I'm not having a great day, I kind of think of those three those three uh, actions, and I say, "How am I doing on those?" And you know. Without doubt, I'm not failing. I'm not performing on one or more of those if I'm not feeling joyful. Yeah, I the each. I mean, I volunteer all my life,
0: not all my life, but for a long time, and I volunteer more now. Every step towards sustainability connects me with people and also flora and fauna around me, even in Manhattan. And sometimes people say, "Josh, you know, I don't have time to volunteer because I've I've work." And I say, I don't volunteer instead of work. I volunteer instead of social media or TV. And it's so much more rewarding.
1: Yeah, completely agree.
0: And, all right, let's get back to the, I found it helpful to make it a smart goal and to say, like, how can you specify what you would do for how long so that, you know, after we hang up or after we stop recording to, to put on a calendar is when the second conversation would be. How long would it take for you to do, and what would it be? So if I asked you how it went, you'd have a meaningful answer.
1: So the the answer right now is I don't know. I know there is a trail association that does this, and I've bumped into often a bunch of retired people who are out there doing it, and that's why I always thought I'll do that when I'm retired, but who knows when that's going to happen with kids who still... (laughs) at high school. Um, So I'm going to call this association find out how the volunteering works. And before heavy snow starts, which is probably in a month or so, I intend to engage in at least getting out there for the first time. Um, so I would hope, you know, I, I think those trails are unworkable from mid-November. So I would hope that I would have some kind of exposure by mid-November. Okay, could we schedule
0: something for then, from mid-November with the option that if they say you got to wait until March or something, then we may have to postpone? Yep, totally happy to commit to that. Okay, and I think you also see that the, this last constraint of you have to leave it better than you found it in some way, right? it doesn't have to be measured, it doesn't have to be big. A lot of people don't get that it's that tiny shift activates, and that can be, it may seem insignificant from the outside if someone's just like a small change because, you know, divided by 8 billion, it doesn't change the world, Mm -hmm. but it does change one's motivation. I think you picked up on that right away.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yep. And actually, I'll ask you ahead of time, how do you think it'll go? What do you think the experience will be like?
1: Do you think you'll like it? You know, this is a good deep pondering question. So, you know, get personal on it because it makes sense. You know, I've been living in the U.S. for 15 years. Emotionally, I'm still more connected to South Africa than the U.S. What I hope is that this will really help strengthen my sense of belonging. You know, it's not, the U.S. is not kind of a familiar culture for me despite living here for 15 years, but I am such a believer and, you know, that's the reason I told that Patagonia story is, you know, I I, I have a deep commitment from to Patagonia. You know, from before I started working with the Tompkins, I traveled and adventured there for years. But that being able to put back into the, you know, in creating, you know, helping create the 11 million acres of new national park that that Route of Parks did was really made me connect even deeper and uh, gave me a sense of belonging when I spend time there. So that is my hope and intention from this is it strengthens my sense of belonging for the U.S. and specifically for where we live now in Bend. The way that you're talking now is
0: – and the way that you feel – how do you feel about this interaction, about my walking you through this? I mean, I didn't come up with the the commitment, but you came up with it. I walked you
1: through it. Are, are you doing it for me? I would say I'm not doing it for you. I think you, you opened some doors. The idea was there, you know, but I'd I'd come up with excuses – for why I couldn't engage now. And, you know, if one's honest, I'll be a whole lot more effective right now while I'm some while I'm significantly younger and fitter in helping with trail building than I might be in 15 years' time. So I think it makes a huge amount of sense to do right now. So you know, I thank you for that because I don't know if I would have acted on it. And now that I've committed to it, I will.
0: I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. I, we're coming up on the end of the hour, so I would love to keep talking, but is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up before wrapping, uh, although we can pick up with more next time too?
1: I think we've covered the main things. I, I, I like the trajectory sort of from where it started to how it got personal and to taking action. And you know, I like you know, it just reflecting always... Through my work, I've tried to make my career where I'm trying to make companies, industries where I work better off than they were before, but that is often at a bigger global scale. So I think bringing it down to local action, which you can see and touch and be involved on a day-to-day basis and see the difference, I think that is a a very rewarding and and personal experience that evokes stronger emotions. So I'm I'm curious to explore it because I've only been living here for two years, so I haven't had the opportunity to do it meaningfully here. So I look forward to sharing what I discover in the process. I'm going to indulge in in commenting on that, if you don't
0: mind, that uh, you distinguish between global and local, and I think you were implying that the local can make it much more personal and tangible. And you also talked about personal. And a big shift for me is also between extrinsic emotions and intrinsic emotions, Mm -hmm. which is often the difference for me between management and leadership or between compliance and inspiration.
1: Yep. There is no doubt that local makes it more personal. And, you know, if I think through, through my career, you know, work like the work I did in the South African wine industry, that was local, and I was coming into contact with it every day, and it, it, it was that much more tangible. You could see the change happen, whereas sometimes where you're working with a big industry on a massive topic, which is incredibly difficult to change, and it might take 20, 30 years to change, even if the work is interesting, it often feels a little more academic and less personal.
0: Well, I cannot wait to start our next conversation. Tony Hansen. thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.